Aristotle and Other Platonists Chapter 2 The Exoteric Writings and the Early Aristotle Beginning with the appearance of Werner Jaeger's seminal work, the phrase the Platonism of Aristotle has usually been taken to refer to a, phrase, a phase in Aristotle's philosophical development. In his book, um, in his book, which appeared in 1923, Jaeger argued that a developmentalist hypothesis was needed to make sense of the Aristotelian corpus. Without such a hypothesis, Jaeger argued, inconsistencies within the corpus would remain unresolved. Specifically, a number of Aristotelian works appear to defend or proclaim Platonic positions, whereas a number of others appear to oppose these same positions. So, on Jaeger's hypothesis, when Aristotle entered Plato's academy at 17 years of age, he became a true Platonic disciple, but at some later date turned away from Platonism to found his own school and to assume his own distinctive anti-Platonic philosophical stance. Regarding philosophical methodology, psychology, metaphysics, and ethics, Aristotle came to reject Plato's otherworldly constructions in favor of an orientation more in line with what we may call, with only a mild worry about anachronism, empirical science. Many interpretive issues are raised by Jaeger's work. Most important is the general issue of what development is supposed to mean. Jaeger tended to understand development dramatically, or deeply to indicate alterations in doctrine. Thus, Aristotle early in his career accepted the theory of forms, and later on came to reject it. That is certainly a development, but there is also a less dramatic or shallow and perfectly ordinary sense of development, according to which a central vision or idea is worked out, adjusted, and refined over a long period of time in many individual works. According to this sense, what develops is not the central idea, but the expression of it, or the arguments or considerations on its behalf. The problem with Jaeger's deep developmentalism is that on almost any account of the evidence, it can be trumped by a shallow developmentalism. For example, on one traditional and widely held reading of Aristotle's metaphysics, a reading that Neoplatonic commentators generally accepted, Aristotle's prime unmoved mover is not a Narcissus-like contemplator, but a mind thinking eternally all that is intelligible. I deal at length with this interpretation later. The point here is that on this interpretation, Aristotle's rejection of one or more theories of forms at any point in his career is compatible with an unwavering commitment to the existence of eternal intelligibles being eternally contemplated by God. So, Aristotle's putative rejection of the theory of forms is interpreted as a development in his understanding of eternal and immutable intelligible objects. On this interpretation, shallow developmentalism can accommodate inconsistencies within a larger, constant framework. According to Jaeger's version of Aristotle's philosophical development, Aristotle was a young Platonist who, in his maturity, became an anti-Platonist. According to G.E.L. Owen's version, Aristotle was a young anti-Platonist who, in his maturity, came back to Platonism, at least in his metaphysics. But on the hypothesis of shallow developmentalism, we need not suppose that Aristotle developed in a deep way towards or away from Platonism. Rather, we may suppose that Aristotle developed within the ambit of Platonism, that is, according to Platonic principles. 
Of course, any hypothesis of deep development must focus on particular doctrines within specific areas of Aristotle's philosophy. Theoretically, it might be the case that deep development is to be found in, say, Aristotle's psychological doctrines, but not in, say, his logical doctrines. It might be, for example, that Aristotle changed his mind radically about metaphysics, but did not change his mind at all about ethics. The same general point about shallow versus deep developmentalism applies for each segment of Aristotle's philosophy. And the more specific the deep development is supposed to be, the easier it is to re-describe that development as shallow, because the specificity leaves greater room for agreement on general principles. Neoplatonists who supposed that Aristotle's philosophy was in harmony with Plato's were not concerned with shallow, segmented developmentalism. If Aristotle's thought deeply developed in matters that did not cast doubt upon harmony, that would not be troubling or especially surprising particularly regarding the account of sensible phenomena. In other regards, development could be accounted for as a result of Aristotle's incomplete grasp of first principles. The Exoteric Writings In a number of places among his extant works, Aristotle refers to his public writings. In a number of others, he makes specific references to works generally assumed in antiquity to be exoteric, Unfortunately, it is not entirely clear which works Aristotle is referring to in most cases, which of his works are exoteric and which are esoteric, or what the principle of division is between the two. Diogenes Laertius, in his list of Aristotle's writings, begins with a catalogue of 19 titles that were generally recognized as dialogues of Aristotle, and assumed to be identical with the exoteric works. The 20th work in the list is On the Good, generally taken to be a report on and study of Platonic material. The important work on the ideas is not listed by Diogenes, but is well attested by Alexander of Aphrodisias. Its status as exoteric or esoteric is not clear. Aristotle's so-called exoteric works were evidently well known to the Neoplatonists. Indeed, many of the fragments we have of these works come from their own references. Although the Neoplatonists generally distinguished exoteric works from the so-called acroamatic works or lectures, they did not make such a distinction based on a developmentalist thesis. For example, Simplicius writes, quote, Aristotle's works are divided into two, a. the exoteric works, for example, the natural studies, and the dialogues, and generally all the works that are not devised with the highest degree of accuracy, and b the lectures, in all of which there is the same careful treatment. In these lectures he cultivated obscurity, repelling in this way the less serious, so that among those he appears to have written nothing. It is particularly worth noting that in this passage Simplicius assumes that Aristotle's dialogues contain his serious thought. His assumption would make it easy to maintain a similar assumption regarding Aristotle's reports of Plato's unwritten teachings. Most importantly for my purposes here, neither Simplicius nor any other Neoplatonist writing about the exoteric works believes that these works represent an early phase of Aristotle's thinking, a phase out of which he grew. We must not, however, suppose that the Neoplatonists, despite the fact that they may have had access to entire works and not fragments, have a privileged hermeneutical position. 
we must not suppose a priori that Jaeger's or Owen's views of Aristotle's development are correct. In this chapter, I want to examine briefly the fragments of the most important of the exoteric works in order to see whether this material can help us assess the harmonists' position. Against both Jaeger and Owen, these harmonists hold that in the exoteric works, Aristotle is expressing the same views he expresses in the esoteric works, albeit in a more popular or less technical manner. We need to determine whether that is so. Eudemus on the soul and forms. We do not possess any of the supposedly exoteric works in their entirety. Therefore, it is impossible to make an accurate assessment of what each one as a whole tells us about Aristotle's thought. Scholars have tended to focus on the attributions of particular doctrines to Aristotle that can be gleaned from the Testimonia. Unquestionably, the doctrine that has caused the most puzzlement, and has in fact generated a good deal of developmentalist speculation, is that regarding the immortality of the soul. For it appears that Aristotle claims and even argues for the position that the soul is immortal. He sees, seems in this respect to support at least one of the twin pillars of Platonism, as Francis Conford put it. The other of the twin pillars is the theory of forms. The attribution of a doctrine of the soul's immortality to Aristotle is puzzling, not just because he seems in the esoteric works to deny it, but because, for Plato, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul is logically linked to the theory of forms. And Aristotle certainly seems to reject that, not just in the extant esoteric works, but in On the Ideas as well. The evidence that in the dialogue, Eudemus, Aristotle held the soul to be immortal, is some, in some way is strong, though one might question that evidence if it were the case that Aristotle clearly held the opposite in the esoteric works. I mean that if one concluded that there was an opposition between, say, Eudemus and Deanima, and if one wanted to reject developmentalism, then one might reasonably wish to question the testimony. Perhaps Aristotle was misunderstood, or perhaps he was represented as having said things that he did not say because this was convenient for the purposes of the commentators. One of the reports of Aristotle's Eudemus is found in Elias's commentary on the categories, and is particularly revealing because it also addresses the question of the relation between the exoteric and esoteric works. Elias writes, quote, Establishing the immortality of the soul in the acroematic works, too, Aristotle does so with necessitative arguments, whereas in the dialogues he does so merely with persuasive arguments. For he says in the acroematic work on the soul that the soul is indestructible. For if the soul were destructible, it would especially have to be destroyed by the enfeeblement that comes in old age. But it is in fact flourishing, when the body is not, just as it is in, just as it is in the case that it is not flourishing when the body is. That which is flourishing at the time when it ought to be destroyed is indestructible. The soul then is indestructible. This is the way he speaks in the acroamatic works. In the dialogues, he speaks in this way. The soul is immortal, since all men instinctively make libations to the departed and swear by them, but no one makes libations or swears by that which is complete, completely non-existent. Aristotle in the dialogues especially seems to announce the immortality of the soul. End quote. 
We need to have before us the passage from De Anima to which Elias is alluding. It reads, quote, As for intellect, nous, it seems to come to be in us as a sort of a substance, and not to be destructible. For if it were destructible, it would be particularly so, owing to the enfeeblement that comes in old age. But as, but as it is as it is what occurs but as it is what occurs is just as in the case of the sense organs for if an old man were to receive an eye of a certain kind he would see just as a young man does so old age is owing not to something experienced by the soul but occurs in the body as in the case of drunkenness and sickness in addition thinking and speculating deteriorate when something in the body is being destroyed but intellect itself is unaffected Discursive thinking and loving and hating are not affections of that intellect, but of the one who has that intellect, in so far as he has that. Therefore, when he is destroyed, he does not remember or love, for it was not the intellect that remembers and loves, but that which has body and intellect in common that was destroyed. Intellect is perhaps something that is more divine and is unaffected. End quote. A comparison of these two passages is instructive. Let us begin by noting that Elias assumes that immortality and indestructibility are the same thing. Although Aristotle in the passage above argues for the indestructibility of the intellect, not its immortality. Later in the work, it is immortality that is asserted. Accordingly, Elias seems justified in his assumption. Far more portentous is his assumption that a proof of the immortality of intellect is the same thing as a proof of the immortality of the soul. Aristotle himself makes an important distinction between soul and intellect. Quote, With regard to the intellect, or to the speculative faculty, it is not yet clear, but this seems to be a genus different from soul, and this alone is able to be separated, just as that which is eternal is separated from that which is destructible. As for the other parts of the soul, it is clear from the above that they are not separate, as some say. The claim that Aristotle rejects the immortality of the whole soul is, I think, as much beyond dispute as is the claim that he accepts the immortality of intellect. Disharmonists simply seem to assume that in this, Aristotle is opposed to Plato, or, yeah, is opposing Plato. Aristotle rejects the immortality of the soul, if that is taken to mean the immortality of the whole soul. Thus, the allusion in the last sentence of the foregoing passage is assumed to be to Plato. Nevertheless, if Plato too accepts only the immortality of the intellect, then the position for which Aristotle is arguing, both in Eudemus and in De Anima, is at least prima facie in harmony with Plato's. The evidence regarding the question of whether Plato believed the whole soul to be immortal or only the intellect has been canvassed many times. It seems fairly clear that in Timaeus only the intellect is held to be immortal. The argument in Republic can and has been taken in the same way, although some demure. It is natural to take the arguments for immortality in the Phaedo to indicate that only the intellect is immortal because in that dialogue there is no tripartition. It is only Phaedrus that seems to hold implicitly that the tripartite soul is immortal. Indeed, if it were not for the passage in the Phaedrus in which the soul is likened to a charioteer with two horses, there would, I think, not be much reason to doubt that the view Aristotle takes is identical to that of Plato. 
There is, however, perhaps a deeper reason for insisting that Aristotle's view of immortality must be different from Plato's. It is supposed that even if Aristotle does acknowledge the immortality of intellect, he is not affirming personal immortality. By contrast, Plato's commitment to immortality is apparently inseparable from his commitment to disembodied punishments and rewards, and at least the possibility of reincarnation. In short, Plato believes in personal immortality, or the immortal immortality and continuity of the embodied person, whereas Aristotle does not. Therefore, it is misleading in the extreme to say that Aristotle is in harmony with Plato on this point. Either Plato believed in the immortality of the tripartite soul, or if he did not, then his view of the intellect must be fundamentally at odds with Aristotle's, such that it makes sense to assign personal properties to the former, but not to the latter. I must leave aside the question of Plato's self-consistency. I do not believe that Phaedrus is at odds with Timaeus and Republic on the identity of that which is immortal. Here, I am mainly concerned with the Platonism with which, according to the Neoplatonists, Aristotle's views were in harmony. For them, the identification of Timaeus, of the highest part of the soul, with the immortal part, was normative. We should not be surprised if this entailed strange views about personhood, strange at least to contemporary eyes. Still, I shall need to address the supposed divergences between Aristotle and Plato, owing to the supposedly personal versus impersonal conception of the intellect. In fact, we shall discover that a deep similarity in the Platonic and Aristotelian conceptions of intellect produced a high degree of harmony in their views about the moral psychology of embodied persons. There is an important reference to Eudemus in uh, Themistius's paraphrase of Aristotle's De Anima, which has been widely dismissed as based on several misunderstandings. Themistius writes, quote, Practically all of the arguments, including the weightiest ones, that Plato adduced on behalf of the immortality of the soul, refer to intellect. This is the case both for the argument from self-motion, for it was shown that only intellect is self-moved if we were to substitute motion for activity, the argument that takes all learning to be recollection, and the argument from our likeness to God. And among the other arguments, someone could, uh, could without difficulty apply the ones that seem more convincing to intellect, just as is the case with uh, those who worked out by Aristotle himself in Eudemus. From these, it is clear that Plato, too, supposes only the intellect to be immortal, and that it is a part of the soul, whereas the emotions are dest uh, destructible, as well as the logos inside these, which Aristotle calls the passive intellect. End quote. Themistius is confident that both Plato assigns immortality only to the intellect, and that his arguments, for the most part, lead only to this conclusion. He is apparently confident as well that Aristotle in Eudemus does not argue for a position different from De Anima. We should also note in passing that Themistius does not take the argument in Phaedrus for immortality from self-motion to entail the immortality of anything else but intellect, despite the myth of the charioteer and the horses in that dialogue. But if we presume that Themistius is reading the same work as Elias is reading, then neither does the fact that libations are made to the departed cause Themistius to qualify his claim that Aristotle consistently held only to the immortality of intellect. 
A fragment from Aristotle's Protrepticus, preserved by Iamblichus, supports Themistius' reading of Eudemus. Quote, there exists nothing divine or blessed among men except that which, uh, that which alone is worthy of attention, whatever there is of intellect or wisdom in us. For this alone seems to be immortal and the only divine thing of ours. And in virtue of being able to share in this power, however wretched and hard life is by nature, still things have been favorably arranged so that in comparison with other things, man would seem to be a god. Quote, Our intellect is God, says either Hermotimus or Anaxagoras. And quote, the immortal always or the mortal has always a portion of God. End quote. We ought to philosophize, therefore, or say farewell to life and depart from it, since everything else seems to be much foolishness and folly. End quote. Not only does this passage support Themistius' reading, it indicates that for Themistius, Aristotle, no more than Plato, thinks that the immortality of the intellect alone diminishes our immortality. Far from it. The exhortation to philosophize is, as it is in Plato, an exhortation to identify oneself in some sense with intellect. This identification amounts to an appropriation or construction of selfhood. But in the Aristotelian and Platonic context, it is an appropriation of what one really or ideally is. The claim by Jaeger and others that the immortality of intellect alone would make a mockery of personal aspirations indicates nothing more than Jaeger's own conception of the personal. Unfortunately, Themistius does not recount the arguments for immortality in Eudemus. We do, however, have the testimony of John Philipponus, that in Eudemus, Aristotle, like Plato in Phaedo, argued against the idea that the soul is a harmony. Philipponus's testimony is hardly surprising, given that Aristotle argues at some length in De Anima against the same position. Philipponus reports that in Eudemus, Aristotle argued that the soul is not a harmony because, one, the soul has no contrary, though harmony, harmony is a contrary, and two, bodily harmony is found in health, strength, beauty, and disharmony in the opposites of these, but an ugly person has no less a soul than a beautiful one. As Aristotle says in Categories, it is a characteristic of substances not to have contraries. Accordingly, some have supposed that the reason Aristotle denies that soul is a harmony is that he thinks it to be a substance. That is evidently what Olympiodorus surmised from the arguments in Eudemus. But this only need mean that it is a substance, usia, in the sense of form, that is, the form of a certain type of body. This is what Aristotle says in De Anima. And that is all that the references by Philipponus and Pseudosimplicius to soul as a form need mean. The point here is that there is no significant difference between the reasons Aristotle gives in Eudemus for saying that only the intellect is immortal and whatever De Anima adds to Aristotle's account of soul in relation to body. The fact that soul is not a contrary does not entail that soul is immortal. But if soul is not a contrary, and intellect is in some sense part in some sense part of soul, 
then whatever reasons for holding that intellect is immortal are not negated by holding that soul is a form of a body. As we shall see, Aristotle's hylomorphic account of the soul is not fundamentally at odds with Plato's account of the embodied soul. To be sure, there are differences, but from the perspective of the harmonists, Aristotle consistently took part of his took the part of his teacher over against materialists of various stripes. Naturally, any Neoplatonist who reads who read Eudamus on the immortality of the intellect would have been led to the following question: What does disembodied intellect concern itself with besides forms or eternal intelligibles? The testimony of Proclus in, is interesting in this regard. Proclus is entirely aware that Aristotle repeatedly attacks the theory of forms. According to Philoponus, Proclus says in his work Examination of Aristotle's Objections to Plato's Timaeus, quote, There are none of Plato's doctrines that Aristotle opposed more than the hypothesis of ideas, not only calling the forms empty sounds in the logical works, but in the ethical works disputing against the form of the good, and in the physical works denying that generation can be explained by ideas. He says this in his On Generation and Corruption, and much more in Metaphysics, where he is concerned with principles, raising major objections in the beginning, middle, and end of that work. In the Dialogues, he most clearly proclaims that he is unable to sympathize with this doctrine, even if he should be thought to have opposed it out of contentiousness. End quote. The reference to Aristotle's dialogues is generally taken to be on, the, uh, on philosophy, where, according to Syrianus, Aristotle evidently discussed forms. Proclus certainly also knew of On the Ideas and its massive attack on forms. Like his character Syrianus, he was somewhat puzzled by Aristotle's attacks for basically two reasons. First, Aristotle's commitment to immortal intellect, and especially to the existence of a prime unmoved mover who is intellect, or intellection, seemed to entail that there be eternal objects for intellect to contemplate. And these, it would seem, would look very like forms. Second, the theory that Aristotle attacks is not the theory of forms that Neoplatonists believed Plato held. Accordingly, Aristotle's attacks must have been directed to misconceptions about forms, or, if one likes, to the characterization of eternal intelligibles as forms. Another fragment of Eudemus in, in a passage from Proclus at least suggests that he recognized a difference between the eternal intelligibles that Aristotle accepted and the forms that he rejected. Quote, the marvelous Aristotle gives the following explanation for the fact that a soul coming from the other world forgets here the sights there, whereas when it is leaving this world here, it remembers its experiences. And one should accept the argument, for he himself says that some people passing from health into sickness even forget the letters they have learned. But this never happens to anyone passing from sickness to health. For souls, life outside the body is natural, like health, and life in a body is unnatural, like sickness. For there they live according to nature, but here they live contrary to nature. So, it follows in all likelihood that souls that go from there to here forget the things there, but 
souls that go from here to there remember the things here. End quote. Jaeger thinks that the phrase ton eke theamaton is an unmistakable reference to forms. Owen is equally certain that the mythological setting of Proclus's discussion has no metaphysical implications. That the phrase does not necessarily refer to forms seems clear enough, though it must refer to something that is outside of or independent of the sensible world. Owen is too hasty in dismissing the, uh, the phrase as having no metaphysical implications, even though the discussion in which it occurred was evidently not a work of metaphysics. If the words ton eke theamaton are Proclus's and not Aristotle's, what he is doing is simply noting that Aristotle recognized that some sort of noeta must exist for disembodied nous to contemplate. But does the passage from Proclus permit us to hold that only an impersonal intellect is immortal? In particular, the last line seems to suggest that the departed souls remember things that an intellect does not. This last line could be Proclus's own inference drawn from the foregoing analogy, but in that case, one would wonder about the point of it. Assuming it to be Aristotle's own remark, one must suppose that, like Plotinus, he struggled with the notion of continuity for an embodied and disembodied person. But this should not blind us to the fact, to the underlying harmony of the accounts of immortality in Aristotle and Plato, and the metaphysical implications. We shall see, when we come to De Anima, that the words souls that go from there to here forget the things there, have a direct reference in the account of the active intellect, even if the words souls that go from here to there remember the things here do not. Protrepticus. Among the Exoterica, the work of which we possess the largest portion is undoubtedly Protrepticus. We may actually possess the work almost in its entirety, owing largely to Iamblichus, who in his own Protrepticus refers extensively to Aristotle's work, manifestly treating it as a product of a Platonist. Iamblichus does not suppose for one moment that it represents an early phase of Aristotle's thinking, a phase that he abandoned in his more mature writings. Rather, like his own Protrepticus, Iamblichus treats it as a popular work expressing in a simple manner more profound Platonic ideas. My purpose in this section is primarily to show that a Platonist reading Aristotle's Protrepticus would have no reason to conclude either that this work is not in harmony with Platonism, or that it differs in any significant way from the views expressed in the esoteric works. On the contrary, according to the reports of Iamblichus and others, what one finds in Protrepticus are claims that are deeply in harmony with those of Plato. Aristotle's Protrepticus was probably written around 350 BCE, and dedicated to one Themiston, evidently some sort of king, somewhere on Cyprus. It is an exhortation to the philosophical life that, as that uh, was understood in the academy. It praises the goods of the soul over the goods of the body, prefers theoretical activity to practical, and identifies the theoretical life with the happy life. Undoubtedly, the loose form of the philosophical protreptic can easily make philosophers who hold antithetic views appear harmonious, 
just because they are both philosophers praising philosophy. After all, even the most relentlessly oppositional among the interpreters can agree that, in some very large sense, Plato and Aristotle are on the same side, or that the Aristotelian spirit corresponds to the spirit of the Platonic Academy. When, however, one examines the fragments of Protrepticus in detail, insofar as this is possible, one cannot help but notice something more than a generic similarity between these and doctrines rooted in the Platonic dialogues. The now-familiar approach to these similarities is to say that Aristotle is here speaking in the name of a Plat uh, Platonism that he eventually repudiated. But, if there is hardly a claim made among the Protrepticus fragments that is not repeated and elaborated upon in the esoteric works, what then? According to During, Iamblichus's first mention of Aristotle's Protrepticus is in the sixth letter of his own work, where he represents Aristotle as saying, quote, The things that are available to support our life, I mean the body and the bodily, are available as kinds of tools. The use of these is always dangerous, and those who do not use them as they should produce results more bad than good. Therefore, we should desire both to possess and to use appropriately the knowledge by means of which we will make good use of all of these. Therefore, we ought to philosophize. If we intend to take part in government in the right way and to lead our own lives beneficently. Further, if some kinds of knowledge, excuse me, some kinds of knowledge uh, first produce each of the good things in life, and two, others use these. Three, some are subservient, and four, others are commanding. It is in these more authoritative sciences that the true good resides. If, therefore, there is one science alone that has the capacity of judging rightness, that is, using reason and seeing good as a whole, and this is philosophy, and it is naturally available to employ and direct all other sciences, we should, from every point of view, philosophize. For only philosophy encompasses in itself right judgment and unerring directive wisdom. End quote. That the body is a tool or possession of the soul, and that the soul is the true person, is a core Platonic belief. A great deal in ethics and psychology turns upon whether we identify persons with bodies, or with body-soul composites, or with souls, or with one part of the soul. For example, the so-called Socratic paradoxes, such as, a worse man cannot harm a better man, sound like nonsense, unless we suppose that bodily harm is not harm to oneself, nor to the soul. Indeed, Socrates' exhortation to his fellow Athenians to care for nothing so much as the health of their souls follows directly from the identification of a person and a soul. Aristotle, so the story goes, may have at some point early on held to the dualistic position of Alcibiades, identifying the person with the soul and the body as the soul's possession. But, he eventually came round to the position that the person is the body-soul composite. This story seems to me to be, a mislead, uh, to be misleading on two counts. 
Most significantly, it misconstrues Plato's view of the embodied soul or person. But it also does no justice to Aristotle. Although Plato undoubtedly held that in some sense, body is a possession, it is not an ordinary possession. Most possessions are distinct from their possessors. Socrates's cloak can exist without Socrates, and vice versa. But this is not so for the body, or for bodily states, of an embodied person. For one thing, appetites and emotions belong to persons. Socrates, not his body, feels pain and joy. And although it is true that Plato can speak about some bodily states of which persons are not aware, the bodily states that include at least uh, appetites and emotions are uh, psychical states. And to the extent that we can say that a person's uh, person is a soul, these bodily states are states of the person. Consequently, at least on the, on the one side of the question, is it is misleading to say that while Aristotle came to hold that the bo a body-soul composite is the subject of appetites and emotions, Plato held that what happens to the soul is entirely separate from what happens to the body. When Aristotle in Protrepticus, in the Protrepticus passage, says that the body is a tool, he is not likely to be implying any sort of unplatonic dualism. But he is implying a moral and ontological superiority of the person to the body, and in general, a superiority of psychical goods to physical goods. This is, of course, no more a prelude to asceticism here than it is in, in Plato. The idea of the body as a tool, or possession distinct from the person, does raise all sorts of difficult problems, given that, the bod that bodily states are also states of the person. These are problems both for Plato and Aristotle. It is far from clear that either one of them is uh, either one solved them. But given that what has already been said, excuse me, given what has already been said about the immortality of intellect alone in both Plato and Aristotle, it should not be assumed that what Aristotle does say about embodied personhood is not in harmony with what Plato says particularly when this assumption is based upon a specious contrast between hylomorphism and a form of dualism unknown to Plato. The contrast of possessions and possessor is made again in a fragment not in Iamblichus, but in a scrap of papyrus partially duplicated in Stobaeus. Quote, We ought to believe that happiness lies not in possessing many things, but rather in how the soul is disposed. End quote. And if the soul is educated, then such a soul and such a man should be counted happy. End quote. And finally, quote, in addition, when worthless men acquire an abundance of possessions, they tend to value these more than the goods of the soul, which is the most shameless thing of all. For just as a man who was inferior to his servants would be ridiculous, in the same way, those for whom their possessions are of greater worth than their own nature should be considered wretched. End quote. The idea that the true self is a soul, and that the truest part of the self is the highest part of the soul, is the basis for Platonic ethics and psychology. It's certainly the only reason for insisting that soul care ought to be one's highest concern, even up to death, followed by nothing else. 
If one is going to show that this view of Protrepticus is superseded by a view that repudiates the identification of the true self with the soul, then one is going to have to do more than point to those places where Aristotle treats the composite living thing as the agent of embodied action. One is going to have to show that Aristotle's fundamental ethical and psychological doctrines could have been constructed on an alternative conception of personal identity. I believe we will discover that this is almost impossible to do, assuming that we take account of all the evidence. A passage in a long citation of Iamblichus explicitly identifies the person and the highest part of the soul. Quote, Further, then, part of, the, uh, of us is soul and part body, and the one rules the other, uh, and the other is ruled. And the one uses and the other is used as a tool. And the use of a tool and that which is ruled is, then, always arranged in relation to the ruler and the one using the tool. As for the soul, one part is rational, logos, which, according to, the, to nature, rules and judges matters with which we are concerned, and the other part both follows and is ruled by nature. Everything is well arranged according to its own proper excellence. To have attained this is its good. To have attained this is good. And in fact, whenever the most authoritative and honorable parts have their excellence, then that thing is well arranged. Therefore, the excellence of the better part is better according to nature, and that which is more fit to rule according to, the na to nature is better and more in control, as man is in relation to other animals. Therefore, soul is better than body, for it is more fit to rule, and within soul, the part that has reason and thought is better than the other part. For it is this part which commands and restrains us, and says that something is or is not necessary to do. Whatever is the excellence of this part is necessarily the most choice-worthy of all things, for all unqualifiedly and for us. For I think one would claim that this part alone is us, or especially so." End quote. The last sentence of this passage is so strikingly similar to what Plato says repeatedly that one would have, uh, have to take it as an aberration or a rhetorical throwaway line if one wanted to insist that it does not support the harmonist's position. But this is difficult to do, especially in the light of what Aristotle says at the end of his Nicomachean Ethics. Quote, so, since, in uh, since the intellect is divine relative to man, the life according to this intellect, too, will be divine relative to human life. Thus, we should not follow the recommendations of thinkers who say that those who are men should think only of human things, and that mortals should think only of human things. But we should try as far as possible to partake of immortality, and to make every effort to live according to the best part of the soul in us. For even if this part be of, all, of small measure, it surpasses all other parts by far in power and worth. It would seem, too, that each man is this part, if indeed this is the dominant part, and is better than the other parts. So it would be strange if a man did not choose the life proper to himself, but that proper to another. That which was said previously harmonizes with that which is being said now. 
that which is proper to each thing is the best and most pleasant for that thing. So, for a man, too, life according to intellect is best, if indeed this is especially man. This life, then, is happiest. End quote. One might speculate that the implicit bipartitioning of the soul in the Protrepticus passage indicates a rejection of platonic tripartitioning. Excuse me. Uh, bipartitioning from Aristotle indicates a rejection of platonic tripartitioning. But this is a trivial point, both because Plato himself was not unreservedly wedded to tripartitioning, and because a putative disagreement between Aristotle and Plato on this point hardly undermines the basic harmonist position. On the assumption that the person is only, or especially, the rational part of the soul, it is perfectly understandable that Aristotle should argue that the activity of this part is the best human activity. Quote, All nature, as something possessing reason, does, not, does, does nothing at random, but rather everything for the sake of some end. And eliminating the random, it regards an end even more than the arts, since the arts are imitations of nature. Since man is by nature composed of body and soul, and since the soul is superior to the body, and the inferior being a servant, is always for the sake of the superior, the body is for the sake of the soul. One part of the soul has reason, and one part does not have it and the latter is inferior to the former, so that the part without reason is for the sake of the part of ha uh, having reason. Intellect be belongs to the part that has reason, so the de demonstration forces us to conclude that everything is for the sake of intellect. But the activities of intellect are acts of thinking, which are sights of intelligibles, as the activity of sight consists of the seeing of visible objects. Therefore, everything that is choiceworthy for men is so for the sake of acts of thinking or intellect, if indeed it is the case that everything is choiceworthy for the sake of the soul, and intellect is alone the best part of the soul, and all other things have been con constituted on account of the best. End quote. Aristotle continues the chain of reasoning, quote, Among thoughts, the ones chosen merely for the sake of the contemplation of contemplation itself are more honorable and better than the ones that are instrumental to other things. Acts of contemplation are honorable, and among the, these the wisdom of intellect is choiceworthy, whereas acts of prudential thinking are honorable owing to the actions they produce. So the good and honorable are in the acts of contemplation with regard to wisdom, certainly not in every chance act of contemplation. End quote. Non-instrumental thinking, philosophy, is identified as the most honorable and choiceworthy of activities. This is exactly what one would expect to find in a Platonic philosopher. It is the view we find repeatedly expressed in the dialogues of Plato, and it is no different from what we would find what we find elsewhere in Protrepticus and in Aristotle's esoteric works. What is particularly important is the reason consistently given for this. A person is exclusively, or primarily, a contemplator. Therefore, the activity of contemplation is the activity wherein our happiness is bound to reside. 
since it is implausible that Aristotle changes his view on this matter between the writing of Protrepticus and both Nicomachean ethics and politics, one must wish to suggest, might wish to suggest, that the way to separate Aristotle from Plato here is to lean heavily upon the words alone or especially, and to claim that Aristotle is here saying something unplatonic. If Aristotle wishes to say that persons are especially their rational part, then perhaps this is meant to be uh, constituent with a form of hylomorphism that is inconsistent with platonic dualism, wherein the person is exclusively the rational part. Of course, this interpretation is of no use to those who want to maintain that Protrepticus is platonic, but that Aristotle abandoned the view of persons later. In any case, as we have already seen, to say that an embodied person is especially, and not exclusively, the rational part is to say something that is, from the point of view of the Neoplatonic interpreters, platonic to the core. This is so because the embodied person is the subject of bodily states. Only the disembodied person is exclusively a rational agent. Jaeger argued that Aristotle's focus on contemplation in Protrepticus implies a, quote, identification of theoretical knowledge and practical conduct, end quote, and that this identification is abandoned in Nicomachean ethics. According to Jaeger, the identification is properly platonic, and the rejection properly anti-platonic, and the alteration from the first to the second could not have occurred if there had not been a fundamental shift in Aristotle's metaphysics. Jaeger takes as proof of the shift of Aristotle's use of the word phronesis in Protrepticus for theoretical knowledge and his use of this term in his ethics exclusively for practical knowledge. I deal with the ethical esoterica in chapter 8, but I think it is worthwhile to indicate here a strange assumption that Jaeger brings to his analysis, an assumption uh, deeply at odds with the way Neoplatonists read both Plato and Aristotle. Jaeger assumes that for Aristotle, the disruption of theoretical and practical science is equivalent to the elimination of a theoretical basis for practical reasoning. He assumes that the only possible basis for such a reasoning is the theory of forms, and that Aristotle, once having rejected this theory, or some version of it, must have gone on to treat ethics in an entirely unplatonic manner. But it is simply a non-sequitur to argue that without a commitment to forms, ethics can have no theoretical basis, or even that knowledge of the theoretical basis is irrelevant to practice. Aristotle himself, in Protrepticus, seems to suggest not that the theoretical is the practical, but that the lawgiver or virtuous man is the vehicle for translating theoretical knowledge into action. Quote, to the philosopher alone among craftsmen belong laws that are stable and actions that are right and noble. For he alone lives by looking at nature and the divine, like a good captain who secures his ship. He anchors the principles of his life to what is eternal and stable and lives as himself. This knowledge of the eternal and stable is then indeed theoretical, but it provides us with the ability to arrange everything according to it. For just as sight though it produces and arranges nothing, for its only work is to discern and to make clear each of the things seen, still provides us with the ability to act by means of it, and assists us tremendously in actions, for we would be practically immobile were we to be deprived of it. So it is clear that though knowledge be contemplative, 
we nevertheless do countless things on the basis of it, choosing some things and avoiding others, and in general possess all good things owing to it. End quote. To say that theoretical knowledge here must be of forms, and that when forms are rejected, the theoretical is cut off from the practical, is to miss the point. Aristotle argues that theoretical knowledge is superior to every other type of knowledge, exactly because of its non-instrumentality. The relevance of the knowledge of eternal truth is, uh, excuse me, to action, is independent of the answer to the question of whether that knowledge is necessary or sufficient for good action. Aristotle seems to imply that relevance as much, excuse me, Aristotle seems to imply that relevance as much in his Nicomachean Ethics as in Protrepticus, because in both works he insists on the superiority of the theoretical life. Iamblichus and others appear to be entirely justified in holding the fundamental harmony of Plato and Aristotle on this point. At the same time, it would, after all, not be surprising if Aristotle did dissent on the precise manner in which the theoretical is brought to bear on the practical, since he had, according to the Neoplatonists, an incomplete and thus an imperfect understanding of metaphysical principles. The claims made in Aristotle's Protrepticus are not completely identical with those made in the Dialogues of Plato. For one thing, the use of terms such as ergon, telos, energeia, theoria, and dynamis, which are either uniquely Aristotelian or used in a uniquely Aristotelian way, is remarkable. But, at its core, Protrepticus is a deeply Platonic work, principally in its account of the embodied person and in its insistence on the absolute superiority of the contemplative life. Removing from our understanding of it a spurious Platonism, it is also in harmony with the entire corpus of Esoterica. It is, it seems, exactly what Neoplatonists supposed it to be, a popular treatment of the basic Platonic principles by Plato's independent-minded disciple. On Philosophy The fragments of the dialogue On Philosophy provide a particularly lucid example of the presumptions scholars bring to their understanding of Aristotle. Valentin Rose in the 19th century, acknowledging on the basis of the extant fragments the apparently platonic character of On Philosophy, decided that the work must not be Aristotle's. By contrast, Jagger wants to make the dialogue conform to his developmentalist hypothesis. Since the fragments apparently contain a criticism of forms, but since it is a dialogue, and therefore presumably an earlier rather than a later work, Jaeger wants to place it somewhere midway between Aristotle's Platonic period and the period of his mature philosophy. But since the dialogue also apparently contains remarks about the nature of wisdom and the divine that are in line with metaphysics, Jaeger variously assigns portions of that work to the middle period and eliminates as spurious fragments of the dialogue that do not conform to his thesis. Paul Wilpert, recognizing the platonic elements in the dialogue, seeks to marginalize or eliminate the fragments that contain a criticism of forms. One could easily extend the list of scholars who have struggled to fit Aristotle into a picture 
where harmonization has no place. Either Aristotle is a Platonist, or he is anti-Platonist. All his works, both exoteric and esoteric, have to be arrayed along this axis. And if a work seems to be both Platonic and anti-Platonic, then one proceeds to disassemble the work in order to make the elements fit the prescribed categories. The key to understanding the flaw in such, such an approach is seeing the weakness of the assumption that Aristotle's attitude to forms is the hinge upon which the door swings one way or the other. Simply stated, Aristotle's opposition to a theory of forms does not contradict the harmony of Aristotle and Plato as the Neoplatonists understood it. The reason is that they recognized a theory of forms as a theory about the intelligible order. A philosopher who denied the existence of such an order would indeed be anti-Platonist, and his philosophy would not be in harmony with Plato's. But there is no evidence that Aristotle denied this order, um, denied this order, and much evidence across all of his works, esoteric and exoteric, that he affirmed it. If we read on philosophy from a Neoplatonic perspective, we see we shall see that. A rejection of a theory of forms goes along quite nicely with a commitment um, to Platonic principles. On this reading, we do not have to excise Aristotle's arguments that imply the existence of separate intelligibles, nor do we have to ha uh, hive off the criticism of forms to a post-Platonic period. The principle of harmony leads us to do no violence to the text as do the interpretations that assume the Platonist-anti-Platonist polarity. As Bertie has shown, On Philosophy is most plausibly taken to be a work devoted at least in part to the subject matter of wisdom, or Sophia. In that case, a long fragment of the work preserved by John Philoponus is likely to be of considerable value. It says, quote, Wisdom, Sophia, as it makes clear all things, was so named, being a sort of clarity. Clarity was so named from the fact that it is a sort of illumination, from the words for light, because it brings things that are concealed into the light. Since then, as Aristotle says, things that are intelligibles or divine, if they are th the things most apparent, in their own essence, but seem to be murky and dark owing to the fact that we are enveloped in a bodily fog, they, ancient thinkers, reasonably enough called wisdom the science that brings these things to the light for us. And finally, they referred to the divine and hypercosmic and totally unchangeable things, and named the knowledge of these things the highest wisdom." End quote. The most striking thing about this passage is the identification of wisdom with a science of divine intelligibles. This is basically the way wisdom, or first philosophy, is identified in metaphysics. We have far too little of on philosophy even to guess how this science is to be constructed, much less to suppose that it is constructed here in the same way that it is in metaphysics. There is no hint, for example, of a science of being qua being, or of metaphysics's identification of theology or first philosophy with that. 
Far more important to the Neoplatonists was Aristotle's evident commitment to a science of the intelligible world, distinct from a science of sensibles, or physical entities. On this point alone, I suspect, they would have staked their claim to harmony. Questions regarding the relations between intelligibles and sensibles, or those regarding the relations among intelligibles, were questions debated within the Platonic school. Those whom everyone identified as anti-Platonists, whether materialists or of various stripes, or anti-dogmatists, such as the skeptics, were united in denying the possibility of such a science. The linkage of metaphysics with the claims made in the passage I am uh, assuming is from On Philosophy. Oh, the linkage of metaphysics with the claims made in the passage I am assuming is from On Philosophy is indirectly made by Asclepius. In an extremely important passage at the beginning of his commentary, where he tries to explain the title, Metaphysics, he states, quote, The order of study is evident from the things that have been said previously. For since nature has its origin in, the, in things that are more perfect than it, and it would be incongruous for us, owing to our weakness, to proceed straightway to these more perfect things, we should first prefer to begin with the things that are posterior and imperfect by nature, and in this way to arrive at the perfect, since therefore in physics Aristotle already discussed imperfect things, and here, metaphysics, he is discussing the perfect, it is reasonable for us that the present study is the ultimate one for us. One has to understand that this study is titled Wisdom, and Philosophy, and First Philosophy, and also After the Physics, that is, Metaphysics. Since, having previously discussed natural things in this study, he is discussing divine things. Thus, the study got its designation because the order of study, wisdom, excuse me, because the order of study, wisdom is a sort of clarity, for divine things are clear and most apparent. In fact, he is discussing divine things. Because of this, he calls it wisdom. And, of course, in the work Demonstration, he says, quote, As I said in the papers on wisdom, since wisdom is the science that uses demonstrative principles, end quote. The words wisdom is a sort of clarity, for divine things are clear and most apparent, end quote, indicate that Asclepius is referring to the same work as Philipponus, and connecting it with metaphysics. In addition, Asclepius uh, explains the order of the study in metaphysics, relying upon the fundamental Aristotelian distinction between what is clearer by nature and what is clearer to us. This distinction seems to underlie the colorful language of the On Philosophy passage. In short, it is reasonable to suppose that the Neoplatonists took the account of wisdom in On Philosophy as a popular expression both of what is found in the esoteric works, especially metaphysics, and of a position that is in harmony with Platonism. Given the characterization of wisdom in On Philosophy, it is particularly worth noting that this work also seems to contain a criticism of a theory of forms. According to the testimony of Proclus, cited above, given this fragment alone, we cannot say that it is that it definitely belongs to on philosophy, although it does not seem to fit easily into any of the other dialogues. But we have the testimony of Alexander of Aphrodisias that 
In On Philosophy, Aristotle argued against a theory of forms that reduces them to mathematical first principles. We also have a passage from Syrianus in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, saying the same thing. Though Syrianus specifically identifies the criticism as belonging to Book Alpha of that work. We thus have good reason to suppose that in the same work in which Aristotle claims that wisdom is concerned with divine intelligibles, he also rejects one version of the theory of forms. One might wish to argue that the refutation of a mathematized version of the theory of forms does not by itself indicate that Aristotle would have rejected a non-mathematized version. The criticism of the non-mathematized version would presumably include the mathematized version, since the latter is, according to Aristotle, a reduction of forms to their first principles. But it might be the case that Aristotle, hospitable though he was to forms that are not numbers, simply refused this reductive step. This seems implausible, mainly because no criticism of the mathematized version by Aristotle is ever accompanied by any inkling of a defense of the non-mathematized version. The theory that forms are numbers is evidently related in some way to the reduction of forms to the first principles, the one and the indefinite dyad, or the great and the small. Neoplatonists generally were well aware that Aristotle rejected the account of first principles as the Platonists understood it. That did not mean that Aristotle rejected the idea that there was a first principle, or that, un that, or that understanding it was the goal of a science of wisdom. Nor apparently did he reject the idea that the first principle must be simple and self-sufficient. Indeed, Owing to the simplicity of the first principle, Aristotle was understandably reluctant to posit a multitude of intelligible entities within it. Nevertheless, he still manifestly adhered to the need to posit internal, er, excuse me, eternal intelligibles. That he did not accept the reductive unity of the forms followed from his not knowing how to accept the multitude of intelligible entities. As for the identification of forms with numbers, the Neoplatonists were themselves not very clear about how this was to be understood and integrated with the reduction of forms to first principles. A passage in Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods indicates that Book 3 of On Philosophy was concerned with the nature of the divine, that is, with the subject matter of wisdom. Accordingly, perhaps the most famous of the fragments of On Philosophy is universally assigned to Book 3. Simplicius, evidently relying on the commentaries of Alexander of Aphrodisias, tells us that, quote, Aristotle says that the divine is eternal. Alexander testifies, as, to, as do the things clearly said many times in the discussions and the works intended for the public, namely that necessarily the first and the highest divinity has to be unchanging. For if it is unchanging, then it is also eternal. By works intended for the public, he means those advanced for the many according to an ordered elementary exposition, which we are accustomed to call exoteric, just as we call the more serious works lectures or doctrinal. He deals with the above argument in his On Philosophy. For it is universally the case that in things in which there is something that is better, in these things there is also something that is best. Since, therefore, 
among the things that exist, one thing is better than another, there is then also something that is best, and which is what the divine would be. Now, that which changes does so either by another or by itself. If by another, it changes either for the better or for the worse. If by itself, either to something worse or as a result of desiring something better. But the divine has nothing better than itself by which it will be changed, for that would be more divine. And it is not allowable for the better to be affected by the worse. And of course, if it were changed by something worse, it would have allowed something bad in it, though there is in fact nothing bad in it. But neither does it change itself, owing to a desire for something better, for it has no lack of its own goods in it. Nor does it change to something worse, since not even a man willingly makes himself worse. Nor does it have anything bad which it would have gotten from its change to the worse. And Aristotle got this proof from the second book of Plato's Republic. End quote. The passage to which Simplicius is referring in the last lines makes in a, a somewhat more informal way exactly the same point, namely that the divine is unchangeable. The passage in Plato, however, does not contain an argument for the existence of a god, as does the present one. In the present argument, the sense in which the divine is best is left vague, though it is natural enough to suppose that Aristotle means that the life of the divine is the best sort of life. If Aristotle had not then argued that the best must be unchangeable, we might have supposed that the def uh, definite description best just referred to whatever was actually best, however flawed it might be. That is, one might have supposed that Aristotle was just making the logical point that where there are two or more things, one of, one of which is somehow better than the others, then there must be one that is, among them all, the best. But this is not a possible interpretation, given the connection Aristotle makes between the best and the property of unchangeability. Still, there is a gap between a notionally perfect and a really perfect god. To say that our claim that something is relatively imperfect implies a concept of perfection is a long way from saying that the existence of the imperfect implies the existence of the perfect. Aristotle must here be arguing for the latter, owing to its being somehow causally connected to the imperfect. How then is the perfect and unchangeable God supposed to be related to everything else? Luckily, a reference to On Philosophy in Aristotle's Physics provides a plausible answer. Aristotle says that final cause has two senses, as was said in On Philosophy. End quote. These two senses, as is made explicit in a number of other places, refer to 1. the reason for which something is done, and 2. the person or thing affected by 1. For example, a medical procedure can be done, one, for the sake of health, and two, for the sake of the patient. One might characterize the distinction as one between aim and benefic beneficiary. The central point of the distinction is that a final cause need not be subject to any change, as the beneficiary normally would be. So, not only is it likely that the causality of the unchangeable God in On Philosophy is final causality in the sense of one above, but we must suppose that the distinction employed in metaphysics and elsewhere is already in the dialogue. 
Taking that work as a popular version of the more sophisticated works is then at least in this respect hardly unreasonable. But, as Simplicius suggests, Aristotle in On Philosophy is employing a platonic argument. The reason given in the Republic passage for the unchangeability of the divine is never retracted by Plato. Far from it. Whatever activity the demiurge or divine intellect engages in, it does not change, for change would have to be for the worse. How the divine is supposed to be causally related to the universe, then, is a problem, one with which the Neoplatonists were deeply concerned. Three points are crucial. First, though the final causality to which Aristotle is evidently referring in On Philosophy does not appear clearly in so many words anywhere in Plato's various accounts of the divine, nevertheless, the fundamental Platonic doctrine of assimilation to the divine, coupled with the characterization of the divine as unchangeable, is not very far removed from Aristotle's characterization of God. Second, Plato's association of the divine intellect, or demiurge, with forms in Timaeus, allows for the former to be characterized as an ideal to be emulated in exactly the same way as is the divine final cause for Aristotle. Third, the differences that nevertheless remain between Aristotle's and Plato's accounts of the divine and of its relation to the world can be explained on the basis of the former's incomplete account of the first principles, just as the harmonization thesis would have it. Aristotle's exoteric works have been treated, at least since Jaeger's study, as evidence for a relatively immature phase in Aristotle's development. Most for most scholars, that development is away from Platonism and toward a philosophical position that, however we characterize it in particular, is anti-Platonic. The fundamental criterion and mark of development is Aristotle's commitment to, or abandonment of, the theory of forms. From the perspective of the Neoplatonists, this criterion is flawed principally because it rests upon an unsophisticated account of Plato's metaphysics. Armed with a better account, one can see first of all that Plato too is an opponent of various theories of forms, including at least one held by certain friends of the forms, and others held by members of his academy. What Plato is unreservingly committed to is the eternality and hence ontological priority of the intelligible to the sensible world. And in the intelligible world is to be found a hierarchy and a complexity wherein a divine intellect or mind has an essential, though not absolutely primary, place. When one comes to the dialogues with Neoplatonic assumptions, and not with Jagerian assumptions, the tradition that the dialogues are popular expressions of an established philosophical position, and not immature, soon-to-be-discarded positions, makes good sense. What is especially striking about such an approach is that it lets us see that in their harmony with Platonism, the dialogues differ hardly at all from that established philosophical position.